Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I am J.P. Hornstra of the Southern California News Group. Cody Bellinger is a free agent. So is Edwin Rios. Can you bat left-handed? There is a non-zero chance the Dodgers are scouting you right now, if so. Sean Green will be joining me later in the episode to recap awards week. We spoke last Friday in between the announcement of the AL MVP and the NL MVP, which was kind of an interesting time to do it. It just happened to be when we could hook up. When we spoke, we were not privy to the particulars of Freddie Freeman's fourth place finish. He was actually very close to finishing in the top three. Or Mookie Betts' fifth place finish. He was not very close to finishing in the top four. Or Julio Arias getting a second-place vote from a writer in Denver, where, ironically, Julio Arias made his worst start of the 2022 season. And that was the only ballot on which Julio Arias appeared. This I would have talked about this with Sean for about five minutes, probably. Voting can get wild sometimes. Julio Arias was left off of eight Cy Young Award ballots and 29 MVP ballots, but he did get a second-place MVP vote. Dude, more power to you. Before we get into that, I wanted to take a look at the Dodgers' decision to non-tender three players, Cody Bellinger, Edwin Rios, and Luke Williams, who we should probably spend the majority of the next 10 seconds talking about. Do you remember Luke Williams? The Dodgers claimed him off waivers from the Miami Marlins earlier this month. Dude never had a locker or a uniform number. And then he was non-tendered for reasons equally mysterious to the reasons why the Dodgers picked him up in the first place. Please hit me up with your Luke Williams memories wherever you choose. Edwin Rios, do you remember him? Gotta say, I wasn't really expecting this non-tender because if the Dodgers had picked up Justin Turner's contract option for 2023, I would sort of get it because Edwin Rios is a third base slash DH type like Turner. If the Dodgers had tendered Cody Bellinger a contract for 2023, I would sort of get it. Bellinger is a left-handed hitter like Edwin Rios. But neither of those things happened, so let's take a minute here to read between the lines. Rios' salary shouldn't be prohibitive for the Dodgers. This was going to be his first year of arbitration eligibility, and a player in his position, having missed most of last season, might make around a million dollars, plus or minus. For Rios' sake, look, I hope he comes back healthy in 2023. I'm guessing that he's going to get more playing time wherever he lands than he would have had the Dodgers tendered him a contract because the Dodgers were planning on playing Edwin Rios a lot. 
he wouldn't be a free agent right now. Andrew Friedman said that decision to non-tender Rios was a matter of quote-unquote fit on the 40-man roster. Well, that doesn't tell us much because, for one thing, you can fit four players on that 40-man roster right now before it's actually full. For another, there are some openings on the 26-man roster for a good major league hitter. If you go on roster resource right now and look at the Dodgers' depth chart, the bullpen looks pretty familiar. The rotation one through four is the four guys you would expect. Then they have Ryan Pepio at number five. Okay. The starting lineup, though, has Gavin Lux at shortstop, Chris Taylor at second, Miguel Vargas at third, Trace Thompson in center field, and James Outman in left. How many of those guys will actually be in that position on opening day of 2023? I say zero, maybe one at the most. All right, now let's look at the bench. Again, this is roster resource projecting a four-man bench based on current players in the Dodgers organization. We got Austin Barnes, okay. Michael Bush, okay. Well, we talked about him last week. He's a left-handed utility guy. Hasn't played in the majors, but he probably will in 2023. All right. Not plausible. Well, then you got Jacob Amaya. He's a local guy from the San Gabriel Valley. Glove first shortstop. Probably not going to break camp with the Dodgers next season, but you might see him in 2023. Okay. And the last guy that they have is Ryan Ward, who's a left-handed hitting outfielder. He topped out at A last year. He's not on the 40, man. I've heard his name mentioned as a possible Rule 5 pick by some team this season. So he might be on somebody's bench in 2023, but it will not be the Dodgers, at least not on opening day. So if Edwin Rios doesn't quote-unquote fit on this 40-man roster, what does that tell us about the team Andrew Friedman and his company are putting together? Well, maybe it means the Dodgers are serious about trying to bring back Cody Bellinger, ostensibly on a lower salary than he would have made had he been tendered that contract. I'll circle back to him in a minute. Maybe the Dodgers are projecting big things for guys like Michael Bush and James Outman, two left-handed hitters who we saw a little bit of Outman in 2022. Michael Bush was a former high high draft pick. Okay, good season at AAA. I can see that. Could be on the bench to start 2023. Outman also could be on the bench to start 2023. I doubt he'll be the opening day left fielder, but stranger things have happened. Maybe, maybe though, I think the fit might be more aesthetic than anything else. Edwin Rios has struck out 93 times in 112 major league games. He has 57 hits. He is a pure slugger with a poor history of health. He's not a nimble athlete who hits for average and can hit for power as a bonus. Mookie Betts, Trey Turner, even Freddie Freeman to a degree all fit that description. And that was the backbone of the lineup last season. The first three hitters in the batting order. I wouldn't be surprised if that's indicative of the kind of lineup Andrew Friedman is trying to assemble. Gavin Lux even fits that bill. Chris Taylor, when his swing is right, fits that bill. Now Trey Turner is a free agent. 
and all of this talk about who fits the aesthetic of the lineup the Dodgers are trying for makes me think that Turner, not Bellinger, not Justin Turner, not even the starting pitcher, Trey Turner could be the highest priority for the Dodgers right now. And maybe that's as it should be. He is the best player, best position player in that group. Cody Bellinger would have been owed, I believe, a minimum of $13.6 million next season. I know you see the $18 million figure thrown out a lot, but that's what Bellinger was projected to make in 2023 by MLB trade rumors. Under the last CBA, I haven't seen this version, but under the last one, at least one version before that, probably several, a player had to be offered 80% of what he made the previous season if he's eligible for arbitration like Cody Bellinger is. Bellinger made $17 million in 2022. A $1 million raise is pretty standard for a guy who had a season like Bellinger, but 80% of $17 million is $13.6 million. So if the Dodgers had offered Bellinger between $13.6 and $17 million, would an arbitration panel have looked at his 210 average, his 265 OBP, his 389 slugging percentage, and said, no, man, give this dude a raise? I don't think so. However, I think that's the wrong question to be asking here. Because even if the Dodgers win that battle, they might lose the war. Given a choice, a front office would rather be in the good graces of a player and his agent. And just because the Dodgers can lowball Cody Bellinger and win an arbitration case doesn't mean that they should. If the Dodgers are really thinking about bringing Bellinger back for all the reasons we've discussed, his defense, his base running, his base stealing, the potential for improvement as a hitter, what's the best way to do that? Lowball him in arbitration or cut him loose and then try to give him a contract that he can max out for $18 million or more by achieving some kind of performance-based incentives. That way, Bellinger can earn what he believed he deserved in arbitration if he has a good season. Would he really want to re-sign with the Dodgers after losing an arbitration hearing and getting $17 million or less? Talking about 2024 now, when he's eligible for free agency. I know that would leave a sour taste in the mouth of the Scott Boris Corporation. Now, Scott might be feeling jilted right now anyway, now that Bellinger can shop his services to all 30 teams. And he might not be worth $18 million or more to any of them, but I can easily imagine one GM taking more of a gamble than Andrew Friedman is willing to do at this date. Friedman probably figured he could non-tender Bellinger and have a chance to bring him back at a lower salary, or, if not, find a replacement who could give a better-than-replacement-level production for the same amount of money. Remember, this could easily be a year in which the Dodgers try to reset their payroll to get under the luxury tax threshold. The Associated Press reported that the Dodgers' luxury tax payroll was $310.6 million at the beginning of last season. That number came down when Trevor Bauer was suspended, but even then, they were still into that third penalty tier. Next season, the first luxury tax threshold rises to $233 million. And the Dodgers would need to shed probably about $40 million from their end-of-season 2022 payroll, excluding Bauer, 
to get under that number. Right now, SpotTrack estimates that the Dodgers' 2023 payroll will come in just under $177 million. So they can spend about $56 million before bumping into the luxury tax. I don't know that the Dodgers are hell-bent on resetting, but if they were, you would do a lot of the things that Andrew Friedman has done so far. Decline Justin Turner's option, non-tender Cody Bellinger, and if Tyler Anderson wants to reject his qualifying offer and sign a three-year deal with the Angels, more power to you, bud. Godspeed. It almost makes sense to reset at this point. That way, the Dodgers can go over the luxury tax in 2024 without getting penalized as much money. So don't say goodbye to Cody Bellinger just yet. Just know that the way this offseason is shaping up, he might be fourth on the list of priorities that now includes a shortstop, a starting pitcher, and either Justin Turner or somebody who can come in and replace him as a right-handed hitter in the middle of the lineup. I wanted to correct one thing from last week's show before we bring on Sean. I stated that to be eligible for the Rule 5 draft, a player needed six seasons of minor league service. That's not true. After six seasons in the minors, generally speaking, a player is eligible for free agency. But to be ineligible for the Rule 5 draft, a player signed at 18 or younger needs to be added to the 40-man roster within five seasons. 19 or younger, you have to be added within four seasons, not six. All right, with that, let's bring on Sean. And now I'm happy to welcome back Sean Green to the podcast. Sean, thanks for joining. Yeah, happy to be back. We are talking on Thursday of Awards Week. We are eagerly anticipating at this moment the results of the National and American League MVP votes. I am fortunate in that I did not have to vote in either of these because I think they both would have been incredibly difficult. Um, I have my thoughts, but Sean, curious to hear yours. Did you have a favorite in the American and or National League? Yeah, I mean, I have a very strong opinion on the American League. National League, I think it's you know a little tighter. I, I do like, I think Goldschmidt had an incredible year, and I think he... Um, just created such a um, spark for that team that helped. And Arenado had an amazing year, but I think having he was just such an anchor on that Cardinals team and had such such a strong year that I think it's hard to to pass on him. Um, Machado had a great year and on the the big rival there, but um, I, I just yeah, for me that I, I would go with Goldschmidt. And then in the, in the American League, I find it like the most absurd debate ever. I mean, Judge had an amazing year, but Otani's year should be the MVP of every season that's ever existed in baseball. <laughs> oh, wow. I, don't how, I still don't know how you could, I mean, even Barry Bonds' year in 2001 was, you know, ridiculous, but if you're the Yankees right now and you say, going into the playoffs, who would I rather have on my team? Not even taking into account the judge struggled in the postseason. Who would you rather have? A number one pitcher and a guy that could hit anywhere in your lineup? Or would you rather have a guy who, you know, had this amazing offensive year? 
yeah. and plays good defense. So uh, for me, he's two, not just all-stars, but two top of his position players um, in one. And I, it just, it's, it's, for me, it's absurd that it wouldn't be unanimous. And he's not even going to win. So we all know that the judge is going to win being a Yankee and having the, you know, the season that he did. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't unanimous last year. I, I, I think there's a sizable portion of the Baseball Writers Association of America that would agree with every word that you just said. It's just a question of, number one, who actually gets an MVP vote this year, which it's always random. It's randomized. That's by design. You want to rotate who gets to pick these awards. And, and number two, I think that there is peer pressure that exists among voters, and I think you're absolutely right. The peer pressure was to pick judge. And yeah. the reason that it would have been so difficult for me is that when you are sorting through how to evaluate the value of Shohei Otani, it is so, so, so hard because he broke the scale. War was not designed to measure what he does. No measure, no version of war was built with the anticipation of a player like him. And so you have to throw that out the window, I think, and just go your own way, and I think that's why peer pressure and, and some of these more intangible things like playing in the New York market come into it. Yeah. I, so first off, I, I, I'd like to push aside the whole, well, the Yankees won, Angels didn't. Like, I, I just think mm. that's, that's not fair, right? I mean, in my opinion, if it's between two guys and, and it's like neck and neck, they have very similar numbers, and one was on then, yeah, maybe weigh that in. But it's not, it's not Otani's fault, obviously, that the Angels, you know, struggled and had, you know, tough, tough finish to their season. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just think, just like sometimes, you know, I think in the new era, they don't like to value RBIs as much because they'll say, oh, someone didn't have as many opportunities as this player did. Um, so they kind of devalued that. But, you know, it's a lot of the greatest players who ever played the game never played in the World Series. I mean, there's, or never won a World Series. So it's, you just can't, you can't really go down that path because it's not their fault. Um, but I don't know. I, I just think Otani shouldn't be penalized because there's a scale and there's, there's no you know, barometer for what he's doing. Um, he also shouldn't be penalized for doing it two years in a row and say, oh, you won it last year. It's just, just like, you know, Barry Bonds won a bunch of them. Roger Clemens sure. won a bunch of Cy Youngs. Like those, they, it should be more reason. The fact that he's done it multiple times, like this guy should win it every year. Like if Otani hit twenty home runs and was twelve and twelve as a pitcher, ten and ten with you know one hundred and fifty two hundred strikeouts, in my opinion, that's the most valuable player. Yeah. So yeah, the fact that he's at the top of each of these um, positions is all the more reason why it should be a, a no contest in my mind. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really curious to see how many writers agree with you. Um, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll all know. Uh, I hope it isn't unanimous for Judge. I think that's my only hope is that there are enough writers who recognize that this shouldn't be just a slam dunk in favor of Judge um, for all the reasons you mentioned. And, you know, just the fact that Otani seems to be able to do all of this while staying healthy is just maybe the most remarkable and most underrated aspect of all of it to me. Um, yeah, and he's also, you know, 
just a quiet, humble guy. And yeah. I think a lot of times you, if you're not flashy, then you kind of lose some, some points in, in whatever, you know, uh, subconscious that the voters have. It's, it's just like the, that exciting player that, you know, does all this flashy stuff on and off the field. Um, you're not getting that with Otani and, you know, he doesn't speak great English. And so there's, there's other factors mm-hmm. I think that might be hurting his, um, just kind of overall presence in the game. And I don't think that's fair. Yeah. Well, as I wrote in my column about this, I think that this year's American League MVP race is probably the most hotly debated on social media and talk radio that I can remember in at least the decade that I've been covering baseball. And I, I wrote in my column that the real American League MVP is the enemies that we made along the way. So that was my dad joke. <laughs> right. I like that. For that one, uh, yeah, thanks. Um, moving along, you know, the Dodgers had a couple guys who finished in the top three in their awards races. Julio Arias ended up finishing third in National League Cy Young Award voting. Dave Roberts finished second to Buck Showalter in Manager of the Year voting. Sean, did either of those stand out as either fair or unfair, or were both of them just about right for you? It's tough. I think... You know, Julio had an amazing year, and, and he was just a steady, reliable guy in that staff when there's so many injuries. And, and you had other guys that, that had great years, too. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where he could have won a Cy Young or he could have got fifth. Like, it's, it's just one of those types of, I think, groupings. And so I, 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 don't, think he, I don't think he was robbed, but if he would have – got, you know, first or second place, I would have think I would have thought uh, I would have been shocked that it was, you know, unworthy, right? And in terms of the manager of the year, it's hard. I mean, I mean, Dave's a friend of mine and stuff, but it's hard. You win 100, it was 111 games, right? Yep. You win 100, 111 games, it's hard to not get manager of the year. I mean, yeah, Buff did a great job, too. But he also had, you know, he had he had a really good team as well. So um, it, was, it was more of a, a turnaround season compared to what the Dodgers have been over the over recent years. But I still think whether or not you have all the talent that the Dodgers had, they had a lot of injuries. They have a lot of big contracts and guys, with a lot of pressure and a lot of things to juggle. He had, he had multiple guys struggling most of the year, hitting around 200, under 200. And, and that's some pitchers that struggle in the bullpen, and it's it's not it's not as easy as it seems, just because they're such a talented team and a deep team. So I would have I would have given it to Dave. Yeah, I think I would have too. Not merely because I, I see what he does on a more regular basis than Buck Showalter, but I feel like voters. First of all, manager of the year is the toughest one to vote on um, by far out of the four awards. That's my opinion, and I know it's shared by a lot of people who are voting, because there's so much more to the manager's job than what we see in the nine innings that the game is played. And and I think if you're a good reporter, you understand that, and you understand it's not as simple as, well, this guy made uh, more of an impact in terms of, uh, you know, one loss record uh, this season compared to last season. Um, I, I feel like the manager of the year typically just goes to the guy whose team exceeded expectations the most. 
as if the manager is in charge of all the intangible qualities that the projection systems don't account for, and that's such a small part of it. Um, you've played in New York and, and L.A. I, do you think that we should be baking in some element of pressure that the manager of either the Mets or the Yankees faces that the manager of the Dodgers does it? Yeah, I think Dave has a lot of pressure, though. When, you're the, when you are the cream of the crop organization and the Dodgers have been that for a long time, there's, I, we saw, you know, if they don't go far in the postseason, then, you know, it's, the, the world's coming to an end. So I think there's, in a lot of ways, Dave has the most pressure of any manager. Uh, in terms of New York, you look at, you know, what, what, what Judge is going to be out of Tawny if the world's reverse of Otani was in New York and Judge was in Anaheim, I think the conversation would be much different. So New York's always been known because there's such a, a buzz around the teams and the players that it's an advantage for all these awards. I'm not saying they're not deserved or whatever. I think any other year, Judge's year, in my opinion, um, I would say like 99% of the years, that would be the MVP other than maybe Barry's year and, you know, who knows one of the years Babe Ruth had or whatever, but it's, it's definitely up there. Um, but I think the, the New York factor helps all of these awards for all those players. And it, it happened when I was, when I was in Toronto, I, I, uh, I had a, a good rookie year and finished fifth in, in rookie of the year. And, and, um, Andy Pettit had a, had a good year too, but I, you know, I, he jumped in front of me. Or there was one time where I had a a month in Toronto where I had a twenty. I think I, in July I had I hit every single game of that month with like ten home runs. So I, I think it was like a twenty, twenty five, twenty. It was a twenty eight game hit streak, but I think almost all of those were in July. And then Jeter hit for a little higher average, and he won Player of the Month. But he had a great month. But I think the New York factor always kind of gives a little edge for these types of. And I played New York too, and and you know it's it's there's just so much more at stake and so much more high profile. Sure, sure. Well, breaking news: Paul Goldschmidt has been named National League Most Valuable Player. So kudos to Paul Goldschmidt. You called it, Sean. You got one. Like I said, I'm glad I didn't have a vote. But the years that I have had an an MVP vote, the one thing that I always like about Goldschmidt especially for a first baseman, is that he's such a well-rounded player. I, I feel like he really breaks the mold of the stereotypical yes. corner infielder who can't run, um, you know, who's playing first base because he flamed out at a more high-profile defensive position. No, this guy can field his position, and he runs the bases better than almost anybody in the game. He's sneaky fast. And this year, he happened to be one of the best hitters in the game. So I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that award. Exactly. The other factors of his game definitely get kind of overlooked. Um, and you said you don't think of him as someone who's a, a good base runner um, that could run really well. You don't think of him as just so steady at first base defensively, and, and those things are part of his game. He, I think part of it is because of his demeanor. He's, he's pretty reserved. He's not flashy. Yep. You don't see you know, crazy celebrations after he hits a home run or anything, and, and I love that. Uh, but I think it also it also might go against him and just recognizing what a tremendous talent he is outside of hitting you know three thirty with thirty something home runs. Not a flashy quote either. Uh, I am I'm 
not going to interrupt this podcast to watch his post acceptance award acceptance interview. Um, very, very reserved guy. Um, exactly. I do want to circle back to Julio, though, because I feel like what he's done in the past two seasons, he finished eighth in Cy Young Award voting last year, led the league in wins, led the National League in wins. Uh, this season leads the National League in ERA, finishes third, and next year is his walk year. And guys can say what they want, but from my experience covering the game, that walk year can be a real motivating factor. And now Julio has a second motivating factor, which is that he has had two really good seasons and uh, arguably could have won the Cy Young Award in either of them. And, and, and now he's still got something to prove in that regard. Um, obviously, won a World Series with the Dodgers in 2020 and was literally the last man standing uh, when he delivered that pitch in the bottom of the ninth inning to win it. But this is, I think, going to be a big year for Julio Arias in 2023. Yeah, I agree. I think something that's going against Julio is around baseball, he's considered, always kind of been considered the third best pitcher on the Dodgers um, with with um, Bueller and, you know, Kershaw's, you know, clearly like on the down, you know, the, the latter part of his career, but you still think of Kershaw and Bueller, right? And, yep. and when Bauer was there, you thought of Bauer. So, I think that's hurt him because he's kind of been, you know, the just the steady, quiet, young, talented guy that just goes in there. When I say quiet, I mean he just goes out there, gets the job done. Ho-hum, another win, another one or two runs given up. And I think that in some ways, and, and the one team that kind of defied that in my career was the Braves because, you know, it was really – the, the big three and they kind of took turns when he obviously Maddox won the most, but, um, and I, I think for whatever reason, Julio just feels like, um, reputationally he's a step below Kershaw and Bueller. And, you know, hopefully people will start to figure out that, you know, he is the guy now. I mean, he's right up there with the best pitchers in baseball and, It'd be great if he was recognized in that way. And I think what's going for him in that regard is that as we see pitchers get curtailed more and more in how many innings just they're allowed to throw, um, so many guys are lucky to make it two times through the order, let alone three. Julio is a pitcher whose stuff really allows him to pitch to contact. It allows him to go deep into games. I, I know that the way the Dodgers tend to manage is still to be very conservative with him, but if you think about just the injury history and how young he broke into his into the league, I think Julio absolutely has as good a chance as any uh, of any season in his career to set a career high in innings next year. And I think that is something that the voters absolutely recognized this year in giving the award to Sandy Alcantara. I had a vote this year. I gave it to Sandy Alcantara because not only did he pitch at a very high level, but he threw way more innings than anybody else in either league, six complete games. And that was such a valuable thing on any staff that he performed on. It happened to be the Marlins. But I think that with respect to Julio, just his progression has been building to this point where he's a good pitcher. It's not the flashiest stuff. You're right. Like Bueller has the better fastball. Kershaw has the stuff where it just feels like he, in his prime, yeah, the big could throw a no Yeah. Yeah, like Julio doesn't have one of those things that really is eye-popping in the way that those guys do, but 
the steadiness, the consistency, and the durability, that's going to really be in his favor, I think, as, as 2023 rolls around. Yeah, I, to your point, I think going deep into games is is kind of a lost... I don't think it's a lost art, it's just that it's, it's a lost philosophy. And I, I agree with you how valuable it is. You know, I hope that Sandy winning that starts to maybe push some people, some teams more in that direction, not to burn guys out, but it's such an advantage to your bullpen. And, and as a hitter, when you have a guy that's dominating against you and the guy comes out, you're saying, Oh, thank God. Now we got a yeah. shot. Cause now, you know, especially if it's nowadays, it's like the fifth or sixth inning, a guy will come out and you're just like, okay, these next three or four guys that come in, they all have to be on their game. Cause this guy was on and, and that's, you can't wait for that guy to come out. So um, I, I think the thing in baseball is, you know, there's it's so much data now and, and numbers and all that. I, things kind of bounce around a little bit. Like, so this is great, and we're going to go five, six innings, and all of a sudden, someone else kind of breaks the mold, and other teams say, wait a second. You know, the numbers actually look pretty good when we go seven, seven innings and only have to bridge two innings. Mm-hmm. So maybe this, this friend... Maybe that's one of the trends that could change. And you're right. I think the way Julio pitches, I think he could be the type of guy that goes a little deeper into games um, than, than a lot of the other pitchers who are, are are more about throwing as hard as they can for, you know, as long as they can get the lineup twice and move on to the next guy. Yeah, for me, I mean, if that's his calling card for the rest of the, his career, uh, Julio Arias, be, being more of a workhorse type guy, I, I think that just makes him even more fun to watch, uh, in my opinion. Um, can't wait to see how, how your boy Otani fares. I, uh, <laughs> I, I think that it's going to be a fascinating case study. It is something that people will be talking about for years, regardless of how it shakes out. Anyways, I think, I think people just really, really need to appreciate it. For me, he's in the mold of, there's only a few athletes I've seen in my life, my lifetime that I would put in his category. And it's really uh, Bo Jackson. And mm-hmm. I would say Jim Abbott, like what Jim Abbott was able to do, just guys who came in and did something completely unheard of that no one thought was possible. And I'm yeah. sure there's more out there. Those are just two that in the baseball world that have popped up. And so the next guy that I see is, I think, geez, uh, I mean, Otani's doing something that I would have never guessed someone was going to do. Yeah. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Let's appreciate him when we can, and uh, hey, he'll be a free agent in a year. Maybe he'll be a Dodger. That's you never right. know. How oh, great <laughs> would that be? I would love that. Uh, yeah, you're not alone. Well, on that note, Sean, I'll let you go. Thanks, all, as always, for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks, JP. All right, folks. Thanks for joining this week. Have a great Thanksgiving be back next week unless there is some breaking news in the meantime hopefully executives around the major leagues are eating their turkey taking their nap and giving thanks i appreciate you for listening please rate review and subscribe if you have not already done so we appreciate that around here time. Be well.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.